We were watching a scene of the movie. Um, it was a shootout scene. There were guns firing, and then uh, a lot, a loud bangs came from the right of the theater. Um, smoke took over the entire theater and everything, and it was really thick, and no one could really see anything. Um, me and my sister were sitting there wondering what was going on. Five people that were limping, wounded, uh, slightly bloody. Um, the most that I saw was a girl who was pretty much covered in blood, and she didn't have any wounds on her. So it made me think the worst. The power of Hollywood, the power of images, the program, the mind, is not debated. And the Pentagon and Madison Avenue know that. You are being subconsciously programmed. When you go in one of these movies and just turn yourself over to it and suspend a disbelief, you become a willing victim to have your mind literally programmed in that key fear state. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now here are your hosts, Basil and Gauntz. Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio again. Thanks for tuning in this week to a very special episode we have. Uh, my name is Basil. And I'm Gons, and we have a very special guest today. A friend, and um, he's an award-winning filmmaker, he's a published author, he's an artist, he's an army veteran, uh, he's a public speaker, he's a screenwriter, he's an actor, he's a former missionary. Uh, man, what's this guy not done? He has a book called Babylon Rising and the First Shall Be Last. He's got a bunch of DVD lectures, including Mythology and the Coming Great Deception, the Mount Hermon slash Roswell Connection, and uh, most recently, The Archon Invasion and the Return of the Nephilim Part 1 and 2. And Ooh. he's also working on Seed the Series, which is going to be a hit show on Sci-Fi Channel, except they don't know it yet. Uh, <laughs> how's it going, Rob? It's going great, man. How are you guys doing? Pretty good, pretty doing good. Well. So uh, awesome. we, we just want to jump in and um, and just talk about some stuff. And and uh, we yeah. we know that you know the the hot topic right now is the whole thing that went down in Colorado. And yeah. uh, you know it's an unfortunate situation. There's there's obviously you know some really sinister things going on there. But what's your kind of take on that? I know uh, there's not a whole lot that we can say, but there are things that that I know that are on your mind. So you got any uh, comments and just, stuff? It just really frustrates me because th- th- they're getting so bold these days. And when I say it's the infamous they. Right. <laughs> You know, the ones that are responsible for all the conspiracies out there. And I do believe they are conspiracies. Uh, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. It's becomes so obvious when you see, okay, they're getting ready to do a big uh, uh, vote on gun control. And, oh, wow, just all of a sudden this guy comes out of nowhere and he's got an AR-15, a shotgun, and some Glocks. Right. You know, right. Uh, three specific types of weapons. You know, uh, if you've got an AR-15, what do you need a shotgun and a Glock for? Right. You know, I mean, if this guy is just going to go kill people, all you need is an AR-15. That'll do everything you need it to do. Right. You know, uh, but this guy goes in there with three specific weapons uh, right before this whole gun control ban thing or whatever they're they're, uh, supposed to vote on, I guess, or whatever. Uh, But it also is really suspicious when Lil Wayne comes out with a a music video on July 17th, just a couple days, what, uh, three days before it happens. And in his music video, he's dancing in a movie theater, and he's got some people, you know, his friends or whatever behind him. But the movie theater has uh, skeletons dispersed throughout the throughout the audience. Right, it's bizarre. Yeah, I mean, come on. It, yeah, and it, had- this whole thing, the whole thing reeks of a setup. I mean, it's it's extremely unfortunate and sad, and we grieve for the 
families that they lost loved ones because real people were killed but the whole thing reeks of a setup right and the thing that surprises me is that uh it's just so obvious number one and number two there's people that i would never suspect of uh you know people who scoff at the whole conspiracy thing have been you know shaking their heads and sort of trying to figure this thing out because there's just so many puzzle pieces that uh don't fit together you know um just with the guy's whole story i mean he's a ph or he's trying to get his phd in medicine um he's you know he's a, a pretty upstanding guy you know no red flags um you know, for, for the most part, for for all we know, that's been reported. Um, I mean, how did an unemployed med student get right. $20,000 $20, worth of tactical <laughs> gear and right. guns and uh, everything like that? And I mean, they, they talked about how he had been getting guns uh, for two months. Well, anybody who's bought guns before knows that there's a 30-day waiting period after you buy your first gun. Well, I don't I guess I don't know what it's like in Colorado, but you know, as far as I know, you can't and the and the level of explosives and everything in his house and the balloons filled with white powder and him warning the police that there's explosives in his house. It just doesn't make any sense. No, and he didn't put up a fight or anything. He just said, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, okay, I did Exactly, it. yeah, you no, know, no fight with the police, no nothing. Well, I heard oh, he, he supposedly, uh, I think I read somewhere that he was studying for neurosciences or something. Ex- yeah, has exactly. Something so the first thing that pops in my head is, is this a Manchurian candidate? Is this, is this mind control? Exactly. I mean, MKUltra. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like. It, you know, that's what it looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had the same thought. I mean, he's in that crowd of people where there's, I mean, there's experiments happening all the time. I mean, if there's going to be people uh, looking for candidates for brainwashing, I mean, they they have uh, all the people resources. right there that are going to be the ones looking for people. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the news report to come out that says, oh, yeah, and he had a King James Bible with him in his dashboard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of his car, you know. Right. Uh, just like just like the face eater, you know, yeah. supposedly had a Bible had in a his Bible. car. Of course, they got to have a Bible. I mean, if you're going to go out and eat somebody's face off or shoot up a theater, you got to bring your Bible with you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You and know? I mean, and, and even down to this minute detail and I, even to me bringing it up, it, it feels trivial. But when you think about it, it's really not in the context of the conspiracy, which is, you know, he had his hair dyed red or orange or something. And now, you know, he's claiming that he's the Joker and they're trying to make him out, you know, this obsessed guy with the Joker. And he's trying, well, the Joker's hair wasn't red. The Joker's hair was green. Yeah. And so, you know what I mean? If he was really that obsessed and that, you know, if it wasn't as much of a setup as it was. Well, you know, and, and to go back to that little Wayne video, uh, there were, there's clips in that, in his music video where he's with like a purple elephant and there's one of the skeletons in the audience has like this like furry scarf, but it's purple. And so like there's purple throughout his video and, in the, reports in Colorado where they're showing the friends of the people who were killed. This, this one girl kept going on and on and on about how we need to wear purple in honor of so-and-so. I forgot the guy's name, but you know, they got purple ribbons and purple shirts and whatever. Everything was purple in, in honor of these, the people that were killed. And so wow. you have to wonder what, what, 
what's going on here? I mean, is it, this is way beyond coincidence. Yeah, and if you want to get more into that, I mean, on the esoteric side, there's a forum called Above Top Secret, which um, is a pretty big, you know, conspiracy-minded forum. And uh, what was interesting was 24 hours before the actual incident, somebody posted something uh, that talked about how the Dark Knight would be this, you know, big blood sacrifice would happen and all this stuff. And when this went down, people were freaking out on the forum saying, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, how did how did this guy know? Is he an informant? You know, well, that, well, that was the funny part. You read the, the first parts of the thread and just people are like, oh, you're insane. You're crazy. Like, why would you know, we can't wait for the movie to come out. And then it actually happens a day later or something. And they're like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> Who yeah. is this guy? Yeah, it's you crazy. Know, and they actually started paying attention to the sort of stuff that he was yeah. saying. I mean, I don't know uh, I'm near where I stand on his actual theories that he was giving, but I mean, the guy called it, and it's undeniable. Yeah, that's well, pretty creepy. It's pretty did creepy. You, did you see the movie? I have not seen the movie, no. Not yet. No. Yeah, I just saw it this weekend. Um, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but there, there's some interesting themes related to climbing out of a pit. Oh, wow. Just put it that way. I mean, if you think about the Antichrist coming out of the bottomless pit, and uh, there's, there's just a lot of symbolism in this movie. Of course, nowadays, there's symbolism in just about every movie. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, it, it, sometimes you think, am I just reading into this stuff, or, or, or is it really there? Because um, some of it's just so in your face. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk about reading into something. There was a couple reports, two, two reports. They're conflicting, but at the same time, if you understand these, you know, the significance of numbers, there was 12 killed and 12 being, you know, sort of a, uh, a sacred number and then 60 wounded, according to one report, which adds up to 72. Yeah. And then another report said 12 dead, 58 injured, which adds up to 70. So in either case, which is interesting because, you know, in the Bible, sometimes they talk about 70 and sometimes it's 72. And I've right. heard, I've heard commentary that, oh, it's actually synonymous. 70 and 72 are kind of like, you know, the same number almost. So, yeah, ah, very interesting stuff. But yeah, let's, it's uh, crazy. Let's move on. Let's actually um, get into some of the stuff you talk about in your book. And I had I just had a few questions laid out that uh, sure. um, just you know wanted you to to harp on, and and we'll jump jump in and and uh, ask some more questions and stuff. But basically, the first thing, and I love your book by the way, Babylon Rising, Thank uh, you. and the first shall be the last. It's awesome. I uh, speed sped read it through on the airplane on the way home from Branson, and uh, uh, been working my way through it a second time. But uh, the first question I have is. Um, why should we be concerned um, about the act of mixing animals and human DNA? What's the big deal there? <laughs> yeah. It, that's actually, you actually, don't really actually talk about that in this book, do you? <laughs> uh, I, well, no, I, I kind of hint at it in chapter one with the Genesis 6 experiment. Right. Because uh, uh, I'm just sort of setting the stage for what uh, a specific Nephilim person uh, that plays into chapter two and following the man of many names. Right. Um, but that is that is a subject that I'm going to go head on with. Uh, book two, which I hope to have done and, and ready for print in September. So I've, I've got quite a bit to do. My wife just formatted what I already have done as blogs, and it's about 150-something pages right now, so I've got at least that much more to write uh, on it. <clears throat> but right. it, it is something we should be very, uh, very concerned about. Uh, and I, many people who study the Nephilim subscribe to the idea of a second or multiple incursions that being incursions being angels mating with humans again right. um uh, and i came from that position myself 
but uh, I, I tried to approach the subject matter as an investigative reporter looking for clues, you know, like a detective. Right. And so I'm looking for evidence. And one of the things I was raised to believe with, as it pertains to the scriptures is that there should always be two to three witnesses to confirm a thing. Right, you know, right. the, the Bible says in multiple places, you need two to three witnesses to establish truth. So if you've got one scripture, you need at least two more scriptures to confirm it. And that was the problem I had is I could not, conf- I couldn't find any confirming scriptures for the one phrase and one sentence and one scripture in the entire Bible that everybody uses to justify multiple incursions. And that phrase is, and also after that, Right. In, Gen- in Genesis 6-4. And so I thought, well, I couldn't find anything in the scriptures, in the canonized text, so I'll, I'll go into extra-biblical texts. And I try to set a limit for myself, because you can get into all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. Um, but I figured if I'm going to go into extra-biblical texts, I'm only going to stick with the text that the Bible itself appears to endorse. And that would be either by quoting it or mentioning it by name or inferring something that can be found only in that book and nowhere else in the canonized text. Right. And, and so I, I kind of coined the phrase synchronized, biblically endorsed extra biblical texts. <laughs> and <laughs> I use that phrase to identify three books in particular, the book of Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees. Right. And so when I looked in those three texts, uh, I, I realized very quickly that when you take Genesis, Enoch, Joshua, and Jubilees together, they tell a phenomenally detailed story. I mean, it's just incredible how detailed the story is. Each book filling in sort of a different gap, you know, that one of the other books didn't talk about. Right. And, and when I did that, the, the story just fell in my lap. I'm like, oh my gosh. The, the reason, the, the Enoch chapter 10, verse 10 says that the first generation Nephilim were killed, were to kill each other off within 500 years. It was a civil war. I believe that is what was stylized into what eventually became known as the Greek myths or the clash of the titans right it is the is the civil war of the gods that took place within 500 years after the days of jared uh when the fallen angels came down on mount hermon uh and created the, the first generation nephilim so after 500 years they're gone and then you got enoch ten twelve. two verses later it says that the parents the watchers were uh judged bound and buried and would be buried for 70 generations that's it. You got. You have nothing else in the scripture, the canonized text, or the synchronized, biblically endorsed, extra biblical text regarding another incursion, except for one. We can talk about that one maybe later. But that one happens in the last days. It didn't happen in, in biblical times. Okay. And and so what, then, as an investigative reporter trying to figure out, okay, well then, how did they return? I started looking for other clues, <laughs> and that led me right into Joshua four eighteen and Jubilee seven twenty four which specifically tell you, you got two witnesses there that confirm uh, the after that of Genesis 6-4, as well as Genesis 6-12, which says that all flesh had become corrupted. Right. And the story became crystal clear that that corruption came as the result of the mixture of animals and humans. And so the first thing that pops into my head when I, when I was looking at that was, well, why did they do that in the first place? You know? What prompted them to even go that route? Why would they? Why would they all of a sudden say, "Hey, let's mix animals and people together"? Right. You know. Right. And the the only conclusion that I could come to actually came as a result of reading uh, Dr. Judd Burton's book, Interview with the Giant. And uh, I'll just quote this paragraph here. It says, "Despite the loss of their physical bodies from dying in the flood," he's talking about the Nephilim. 
there is reason to believe that the giant spirits continued to exist. In this state, they were and are demonic entities. Like other sentient creatures, they have an eternal spirit at their essence. Therefore, the Nephilim and related tribes of giants never really ceased to exist. Mm. Only, only their physicality was lost. And when I read that paragraph, it, it, it occurred to me, oh, wow, because Genesis, when you look at the creation account, God is very specific about kinds. He created everything after its own kind, right. and, he, and he made a command that it must reproduce after its own kind. And then uh, a confirming witness for that is Paul later talks about the fact that there's one flesh for birds, one for animals, one for people, and a body for angels, a body for people. Uh, Paul's confirming this idea that there, there are specific rules and in, in species barriers that God put in place. And if you want to think of it this way, if you look up the, the Hebrew word nephesh, it's the same word used that when, when God breathed the breath of life into man and he became a living soul, the, the word soul there is nephesh. Mm-hmm. And when the same thing with regard to the animals, they became a living creature, it, same thing. It's, uh, it's, it's nephesh. Right. Hmm. And so it appears to me that when God created kinds, specific kinds, he has a preordained spirit that will animate that specific kind. You know, there's a spirit for a dog, there's a spirit for a cat, a spirit for a human. Right. And so if you decide to blend these species, well, there's no prescribed spirit to go into them. Uh-huh. You, and so that all of a sudden, you know, this is just a working thesis that I have right now. I'm, I'm still developing it. But it appears to me that when you create something like a satyr, you got a human and a goat mixed together. Those are two different kinds that were never meant to be together. Therefore, there's no prescribed spirit to go into it. Thus, to Judd Burton's point, Dr. Burton's point, uh, perhaps the only thing fit to go into it is a disembodied spirit of a dead Nephilim, mm. which would which would thereby bring about the return of the Nephilim in a new body. Mm. Right. That's very really <clears throat> interesting. Uh, now, if I may real quick, do you have any, um, any idea or any thesis or any sort of, uh, you know, evidence or something to the effect of how this was done? I mean, I know that's a big, um, question among our listeners and things, uh, and and people in the, uh, you know, in the know. Well, here's my take on it. Um, I believe the scriptures say that God created Adam in his own image and his own likeness. And so I believe Adam actually had a hundred percent use of his brain. Uh, right. we, we think we're at the top of the, the pile and we got six to 12% use of our brain. Now mm-hmm. I, I, I think that just proves entropy quite frankly. I mean, right. <laughs> uh, you know, so it, but if you look at what we're able to do today with six to 12% of our brain, can you just imagine what antediluvian man could have done with 80 to 90% of his brain? Mm. Right. And so when we think, Oh, it's an, you know, it, it's an evolutionary mindset that we were all taught in school that cause, that prevents us from imagining pre-flood man as being so advanced. Right. right. You know, so you have to throw that away. You have to throw the evolutionary mindset away and realize, no, we're on the dumb end of the, of the scale. Uh, and it, it's not hard to, to realize that when you look back in the further back you go, the more advanced it seems to be. You look at the pyramids, the megalithic structures, Puma Punku. I mean, you could go all over the planet, all the ancient alien stuff. Uh, that right. they talk about all the time. And this all is, the carvings of the rocket ships and UFOs and things oh, like that. You, yeah, and you got like, I mean, just take the Nazca lines as one example. Here, somebody basically sheared off the entire top of a mountain range, so it's like completely level, and built what looks like runways uh, right. on top of an entire mountain range. I mean, 
we can't even do that today. So, uh, you know, and we don't, with all of our technology, can't figure out how they built the pyramids. So, mm-hmm. and you look at the Mayan calendars and the, and how advanced they were with astronomy and, and calculations of time. So if they, if they were smart enough to do all that, it's not that much of a stretch to think that they could have done the same thing with the human genome or, or that of animals. Right. You know, uh, yeah. so no, that's a very good point. And I think they probably were even more efficient at it than we are today. Yeah, I, I, that's that's actually interesting how uh, you are, um, you know, describing basically the antithesis of uh, what we're trained to think about. Yeah. You know, the history of man, just from the the very beginning of our lives, we're taught that, you know, we're at the peak of human civilization and, you know, things, you know, have never been as great as they are now. Um, I mean, it it seems like that's just, you know, another part of the great deception, too, to keep keep us down like that. I mean, we're so smart, we think we came from monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll tell you what, you know, I was in fifth grade. And I raised my hand because they started really forcing the evolution thing uh, right around fifth grade uh, when I was going through school. And, and so I raised my hand. And I said, well, if we came from monkeys, how come there's still monkeys? Right. And it was, a, it was a simple, innocent fifth grade question, you know. Uh, my teacher couldn't really answer that to my satisfaction, so I asked it in sixth grade and seventh grade, eighth grade. And between summer vacation of eighth grade and ninth grade, uh, something changed because when I got to freshman year in high school, uh, they they dropped the word theory. They stopped saying the theory of evolution and just right. started teaching it as a fact. So I said, wow, you guys proved a lot over summer vacation. So maybe <laughs> maybe you can answer a question I've had since fifth grade. If we if there's still monkeys, you know, if, if if we came from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? And nobody could answer that, you know? And I'm like, okay. So I be, it became my mission to try to, to find the truth. And that caused me to dive into creation science and understanding, you know, how how it was really done according to the Bible. And of course, right. that led me to the the writings of uh, uh, Dr. Carl Ball and Henry Morris, and you know a whole lot of big names in creation science. You know, I, these are the guys I was reading in like freshman year in high school. Wow. Well, going back to what you were talking about with the mixing of animals and your whole theory, it makes sense to me because um, you know I'm, we were talking beforehand about uh, uh, Pappy, you know, and his work yeah. of uh, epidemic. And if you guys don't know, I, I can post a, a show link to it or a link in the show notes. And um, he talks about legalities, and uh, you guys talked yes. about on your show too about how uh, you know we use our our legal names on on you know when we're in court and stuff like that. If if they have the name wrong, then you know then we're not yeah. really subject to be there and whatnot. So that it makes sense in that kind of perspective of you know the, the spiritual realm works in legalities, and if that's yes. the case, then your theory really does have some uh, ground to stand on because if they are mixing you know, kinds that aren't supposed to mix, then it's completely breaking that rule. And, That's right. And like you said, there's, there's no legal right for any, you know, for at least a, uh, a godly spirit, a godly spirit to be in there. And therefore these, uh, Nephilim, you know, disembodied Nephilim spirits can totally, uh, you know, take over the bodies and take up residence, take a residence. Yeah. And, and, and so, yeah. And if you think about that, uh, did you watch the, the l- l- last incarnation of Battlestar Galactica, the, the, the remake of the series Battlestar Galactica? No, I did not. Uh, you might want to check it out if you've got Netflix or something. Okay. You, you you could watch it on Netflix for free. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> it's four seasons, um, and there's a whole concept in there. Like in the original Battlestar Galactica, you had the robot Cylons, right? You know, um, 
they were just basically drones and they'd shoot them or whatever. But in the in the remake, they still had the the robots, but they had adv- they had it advanced. The the Cylons had advanced to the, beyond the point of of what we might call singularity or you know create the creation of. Uh, of smarter than human machines, but they look like humans. They're they're right. cyborg. Right. They, for all intents and purposes, they look they are human. Um, but what happens when you kill one? They have these ships they call the resurrection ship. And so what happens is when you kill a, a, a Cylon, their spirit or code or whatever you want to call it that animates it uh, gets beamed to the resurrection ship and goes into a, another clone of the same the same being. You know the uh-huh. same. The same personality. Wow. And so what what happens is, uh, uh, okay, uh, number six, let's say, um, she's the 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 blonde that you you see in all the posters and stuff. If if she gets killed, her spirit or whatever goes into a clone of her, and she comes back. But now she has the memory of her previous incarnation. Hmm. So it, the more this happens, they they, they learn, they adapt. You know, uh, right. the ship, the ships, even the ships. With the ships themselves are are cybernetic constructs, and when you when you destroy a Cylon ship, it also its consciousness goes back to the factory or whatever, and it produces another Cylon ship. But this Cylon ship now remembers all the tactics and how okay, how did the Viper get me? Right, okay, I, I won't do that next time. And so they had one episode called Scar, where it was sort of like this. Uh, the Red Baron of the Cylons, so to speak, he had been killed many times in battle by the colonial fleet, but had learned from all of those engagements. Hmm. And so if you think about it in that terms with regard to the Nephilim, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's easy to see how a character like Pan, who was very prominent in yeah. ancient literature, how he could have been, uh, I suspect that Pan himself, the spirit that animated that satyr, was that of Azazel, who is known as the goat god. And so, uh, if Azazel produces a Nephilim offspring, is you know, I am my father's son. You know that there's no way around it. I have many of the attributes of my father. Right. And so, it is not unreasonable to suspect that the Nephilim had attributes of their fathers that had very specific personalities. Right. right. And so, the goat god Azazel would have produced offspring that would have been similar to him. And when that Nephilim was killed off the first generation uh, civil war, then that spirit went out, you know, and it was a wandering spirit, a demon of what they called him in the New Testament. Right. So then when somebody gets the bright idea, well, let's, uh, let's blend a human and a goat, see what happens. Oh, well, you just created the perfect host that's like, it's a like kind, but it's not a kind that God made. You know, right. it, it, it's a like kind to Azazel. And so the spirit of, of Azazel's offspring, let's say, would go into that and it could come back again. You know, that's why some of these things, you know, kept popping up uh, both before and after the flood. Right. Well, and you, you know, you even hear about um, in, um, let's see, Tom Horn's book where, uh, you know, Horus and Apollo and all those yeah. guys are sort of the same spirit being reincarnated in different right. um Cultures. Right. Yeah, and that's a great example. If if the thesis is true that Nimrod became essentially a, a, a Nephilim, uh, right. the the word says Giborim, but uh, it, it's actually really interesting the way it's written. And I ended up uh, I have 
quite a, a lot of debates online on Facebook with some of my brothers that, that are hardcore uh, multiple incursion types. And uh, if you start looking up like what the Septuagint has to say, it, first of all, it's Genesis 10.8, where Nimrod becomes, says he began to be. Yeah, began. That's right. Right. Now, our, our King James says a mighty one. And that's accurate. A Gabor, a Gaborim, right. is a, a mighty one. And but that would that word could apply to a giant because clearly a giant would be a mighty man. Um, but it could also uh, apply to courageous people like Joshua, Caleb, and David, David and his mighty men. Right, right. Uh, so you have to take it in context. But what's interesting about the Septuagint is the way it, it treats Genesis six four because it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also after that. And, and it says that they became mighty ones, right? Mighty right. men. So it uses the word Nephilim and Gabor in Hebrew. But in Greek, it's uh, Gigantus, I think, is for Nephilim and Giganus or something like that. It's, it's a close, um, a, a, sim, a similar word is right. used for, for mighty men. And that's the same word that's used for Genesis 10.8. But when you get to Second Samuel, when it's talking about the, uh, the David's mighty men, it uses a completely different Greek word. Hmm. And so it, it, even though the Hebrew word is gibor or giborim, it's, and it's completely different. It uses uh, tone dinaton in 2 Samuel 23.8, where it's talking about the mighty men of David. So even though the Hebrew word's the same, they had an understanding of the context such that they translated essentially as giant in Genesis 6, 4, and also in Genesis 10.8 with regard to Nimrod, because the, the Septuagint, version of Genesis 10, eight just comes right and tells you comes right out and says Nimrod became a giant. Yeah. So if that's the case, then he, he may have activated something or modified himself. Uh, Dr. Um, Michael, uh, is it Michael Bennett? I think is his name, uh, Dr. Future. Yeah. Dr. Mike Bennett. Yeah. Yeah. Mike Bennett. Uh, he talks about Nimrod in terms of being the first transhuman super soldier. Right. And uh, in, in, in uh, Tom Horn's book, uh, Pandemonium's Engine, he, his chapter, his chapter two of the book, is unbelievable, and and I and I agree with everything he says in there. And so, if the theory is true that that Nimrod essentially became a Nephilim or an offspring of the Nephilim uh, when he became a giant, then when he died, where does the spirit go? Right. You know. Interesting. Uh, did it actually, in fact, you know, if you look at the Osiris myth, that that uh, uh, Horus is basically the reincarnation, essentially, uh, of Osiris in life, while Osiris is down in the underworld. Uh, in the Sumerian, it would be, or, or Babylonian, you've you got Nimrod and Tammuz. Mm-hmm. So it definitely makes you think. And, and it's making me think a lot about what could happen in the last days with regard to, I believe, he, Nimrod is the Antichrist. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Will will a, a person begin to be a Gaborim? Or will the physical body actually resurrect? Or will there be a clone of the of the body that is reanimated? I mean, there's right. any number of possibilities, but it, it certainly makes you think. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting that, uh, you know, and I think it was 98, uh, Howie Zawas uh, thinks he yeah. found the tomb of Osiris. And then in 2003... Yeah. You know, CNN reported that uh, they think they found the tomb of Gilgamesh, and you know, we haven't heard anything since then. It's you know, it's yeah, typical yeah. media, right? Yeah, and I I talk about that in my book as well as in the DVD that goes with the book, and and 
I the DVD's two hours long. I did an hour version of it, a one hour version of it at the uh, Prophecy Summit, and and I show that I show the Tomb of Osiris found. Uh, it was 1999. Okay, the, to- the Tomb of Osiris was found or pumped. It, it may have been discovered earlier, but when they finally pumped all the water out and were able to go down there and look into it, uh, it was 1999. But in 2003, as you pointed out, the, in April of 2003. Gilgamesh was found, and then, oh, wow, this is after uh, W uh, got on the aircraft carrier and s- declared an end to the to the war. You know, we won. Well, here we are, we, what, nine years later, they, they finally pulled our troops out of Iraq after right. fighting a nine-year war that supposedly ended in 2003. <laughs> um, we set up the military occupation phase in Iraq in May of 2003, one month after finding Gilgamesh. Hmm. And, and the first thing, and they built the largest embassy of any other embassy on the planet. They built 500 military bases. And the first thing our troops did was raid the museum of, museum of Baghdad. So, uh, and if, <laughs> if the report is to be believed, um, Steve Quayle says he, that he had talked to a, a general or somebody that was an eyewitness to, to this event. And they said that the body that they pulled out of that desert was in a remarkable state of preservation. Mm. And one of their primary goals was the extraction of DNA. So, wow. you know, it, it, we're, <laughs> truth is definitely wow. stranger than fiction these yeah, days. Yeah, that's mind-blowing. Yeah, and, and I wanted to ask you also about, um, you know, looking through the Book of Enoch, uh, it talks about a, I guess, a, 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 like a cloth or something that Adam had that, yeah. uh, that was stolen and then Cush had it. And then he gave yeah. it to Nimrod. What's that have to do with the whole Nimrod thing? Well, that's a great question. And, and I haven't been able to track it much past Esau. Okay. Um, the book of Joshua actually goes into a fair amount of detail of it. And, and I think also the book of Adam and Eve, if I remember right, talks about it too. Uh, but I know Joshua goes into a fair amount of detail. And, and I wonder if that's not where the myths uh, and legends of the Golden Fleece came from in the Greek mythology. Hmm. Because they're, you know, they're all after this golden fleece thing, you know, that has powers or whatever. Right. That that appears to be just like the Clash of the Titans, to be a stylized uh, a Greek version, essentially of what could very well be a a, a Hebrew uh, fact. I, you know, right now I don't, I'm not prepared to call it a fact, um, but the ancient texts do talk about it. So it's either a really convincing myth, or there's something to it uh, that. God clothed Adam and Eve with the skins of an animal, and those skins were passed down through the generations. and And some accounts actually say that that may have helped Noah to get the animals on board the ark. Right. Uh, and that, and that, and some even speculate that that something that was, you know, the whole deal where uh, Ham found his father naked in the tent that 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 may have been when Ham stole it, right? Uh, and and eventually passed it down to Cush, who gave it to Nimrod, and and. Uh, Joshua says that he used that to rule the world. Right. So, you know, did he become a mighty hunter because of that? I, you know, I don't know, but uh, it is an interesting story. And then as you keep reading in Joshua, uh, and this is a fascinating story, because if you're just reading Genesis, when Esau, Esau is also known as a mighty hunter. Uh, in fact, you know, his father loved him because he was such a great hunter. And, you know, and, and Jacob was, you know, hanging around at home with mom. Uh <laughs> The, the dad, you know, bring home the venison, you know, that's my boy. You know, he, he loved his, his, his hairy son, Esau. <laughs> so Esau, the manly man, uh, is out there and it says that he came in after a day of hunting and he sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. What? 
that doesn't make any sense. Right. Uh, but Joshua tells you what, what he was doing. Uh, here's Esau, the mighty hunter, and Nimrod, the aging mighty hunter. You got two alpha dogs out there, and Nimrod apparently encroached on Esau's territory, and Esau waited in ambush for an opportunity when Nimrod and his men began to separate and go different ways on their hunting trip. And so I, I think uh, Nimrod had two or three buddies with him or something like that. And uh, Esau waited in ambush, rushed up, and cut his head off. And killed the other two guys and then took off because the, the other pe- part of the party, the other guys that were in the party, heard all the commotion and they came they t- came to go see what happened. And so what's interesting about that is there were no living eyewitnesses to the murder of Nimrod, hmm. which makes it pretty easy for all kinds of tall tales to be told about, you know, like the Osiris myth that, you know. His evil brother set chopped him up in the fourteen pieces or whatever. I mean, there, uh, mm. all of the and Orion meets uh, meets a similar fate in the mythology. Uh, a lot of these dying and resurrecting sun god stories have a similar end for this character, and I think it's just because people began to make stuff up because nobody knew what happened. Right. But but Esau runs home and he st- he after he chops Nimrod's head off, he steals the garments that that made uh, Nimrod so powerful you know, according to the story. And he gets home and he basically says, look, what do I care about my birthright? I'm a dead man. Anyway, just anyway, just give me something to eat. And the reason he says that is because he just killed the king of the world. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so right. it, makes that, it makes that Genesis story a whole lot more interesting. Yeah, uh-huh. that's definitely interesting. Uh, and also the, the part about chopping off the head. Uh, I think you outline in your book how, um, how in Res, uh, Revelation it talks about, you know, the one yes. who had the head wound, and right. uh, you lay it out how, you know, Nimrod is the only one that fits that description. Right. When you go down the list, and I work my way backward, uh, I, I found that there are four scriptures that I think absolutely tell you who the Antichrist is by name. Uh, and and rather than working my way forward, I realized that it, it's easier for me to describe the situation by going backwards in the text, starting with Revelation 17, where it talks about the beast with seven heads. And it, it specifically says, when the angel's describing the imagery to John, the angel says that it's seven kings. Now, a lot of eschatology teachers out there recognize the fact that, that the Bible will use beasts often to describe kingdoms. But in this case, the head of a kingdom is a king, and the Greek word used there is basileus, which is king. So in Revelation 17, it's telling you we should be looking for seven individuals that embody the beast. Right. And 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 I, I, I my work built upon uh, primarily upon the work of Peter Goodgame, who, who who just did an outstanding job with his book um, The Giza Discovery. Right. Uh, that Tom Horn picked up on and did, did quite a bit more on with Apollyon Rising. So I'm kind of I'm just building on what these guys did, but Peter identifies what he believes to be. The text says five have fallen, uh, one now is, and one shall come, but his reign shall be a short, short. And then the next thing says, and the beast is the eighth who is of the seven. So the last Antichrist is huh. one is one of the seven. Right. And, and so if you go through the list uh, that uh, that I've got in the book there, we, we start to think about who who had characteristics of an Antichrist. You know, so we could go look through look through history, and uh, obviously Nimrod. He, without a doubt, he's the first Antichrist figure. 
he tried to create a one world system without God and his goal was to kill God. So he certainly fits. Um, then you have number two, the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time of the Exodus who thought himself a God and tried to wipe out God's people fits antichrist description. Sennacherib being the king of Assyria, who also thought himself a God tried to wipe out God's people, but the angel of the Lord came down and wiped out like 180,000 of his troops, something like that one night uh, sent him home and his, his own sons killed him. Uh, and then you have the king of Tyre that the Bible describes as a man, but halfway through the narrative, it switches and starts talking about Lucifer. Right. So, so clearly that guy had something going on. And the fifth one, I, I have a little bit of debate on uh, whether it's Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a good candidate. Uh, he's in, in the intertestament period between the Old Testament and New Testament where he set up a statue of Zeus and offered up a pig. Right. Uh, some, some say that that's a, in the temple, you know, that that's a type of abomination right. of desolation kind of thing. So he fits in that regard. But I really got my eye on Alexander the Great um, because of what Daniel has to say about him. Uh, specifically one verse caught my attention where it's talking about the he goat and most scholars agree that that he goat is Alexander the great, that it has a great horn between its eyes. And it specifically says that that great horn is the first King. Hmm. So I thought, well, who's the first King in scripture? Uh, Alexander wasn't the first King. He wasn't the first King. He's, he's the goat. So this is the horn on the goat. So the first King in scripture is Nimrod. Right. So it appears that Nimrod or Alexander the Great clearly did whatever he did, at least in that same spirit. Uh, so there's there's your list of five with one possible substitute in there. Um, and then when you think about the one who now is, depends on when you think is, is. <laughs> like I say, like Clinton, you know, what's the definition of is? Uh, <laughs> uh, so that would be, when was Revelation written? Was it uh, early writing? Uh, which would place uh, in the time of Nero, or was it a later writing? Uh, and I've seen good arguments for both, uh, whether it was written early or late. Uh, if it's later writing, as many scholars believe, then that would be Domitian. In either case, you got two great candidates for an Antichrist-type character. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then it says, the one who shall come, but his reign shall be short, uh, I believe arguably is Adolf Hitler. Uh, you know, he certainly fits the description. Everybody thought he was the Antichrist. Yeah. So, so if that's the if that's an acceptable list, acceptable list of seven, then you have to narrow it down, and that's when you, you mentioned Revelation thirteen, which talks about that he had a mortal head wound that is healed. So, if right. you go through the list, you got to say which one had a mortal head wound. Well, there's only three possible candidates: Nimrod, of course, we just talked about; Nero, if you if you subscribe to Nero being at the time when John wrote Revelation, he said to have stabbed himself in the throat. And, possibly by the Hebrew reckoning that might be considered part of the head. All right. And then Hitler, uh, history said he shot himself in the head, although recent forensic evidence disputes that. So, uh, but just for the sake of argument, if those are the only three that had a mortal head wound out of the seven, you, you have to look at other texts, like most of the, uh, many places in the old Testament, one of the most used phrases for the end time tyrant we call the antichrist is the Assyrian. Right. So, uh, Hitler doesn't fit that near the, neither does Nero. So that leaves you with Nimrod and then revelation nine 11 tells you who he is by name in revelation nine 11, <laughs> uh, tells you that it's Apollyon, which is a derivative spelling of Apollo. And, and then Jesus knocks the home run in Matthew 24. Uh, I believe it's verses 24 through 28, 
where he, he starts talking about what we should be looking for. You know, many false Christs are going to rise and all that. And, and, but then he makes some interesting statements. He says, if they say he's in the desert, don't go there. Well, where was Gilgamesh's body found? <laughs> in the desert of Iraq. Right. He's, he says, if he's in the secret chambers, don't believe him. Uh, the tomb of Osiris was found in 1999. <laughs> and then the, the really peculiar phrase is, it follows in verse 28. He says, for wheresoever the carcass is, there the eagles shall be gathered together. That was actually our next question. So I yeah. was actually going to ask it because I think you're kind of uh your take on this is a really interesting one that's some that's something i uh uh was very new to the in the book that i discovered that was really cool so yeah definitely harp on that because uh yeah. that verse is really i think it's confused a lot of people for a long time and i think you got you're onto something yeah i, I don't know that uh, i don't even know that peter or tom addressed that verse uh, if they did, I missed it. I, I came to the conclusion on my own as because I was a third generation army guy. Uh, you know, my grandfather's in World War II. My dad's in Vietnam, and I was in during Desert Storm. I didn't actually have to go overseas during that time, but uh, I was stateside. But um, I, I'm, I was looking at one of my uh, pictures, my army pictures, and realized very quickly that our army uniform or any of our military uniforms, for that matter are covered from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet with eagles. Right. You got e eagles on your hat, eagles on your buttons, eagles on your patches, <laughs> eagles everywhere. You right. know, cover and that's the national icon, you know, for America is the American Eagle. Uh, but then you got characters like Manly P. Hall, who comes out and tells you, oh yeah, you know that eagle on the back of your dollar bill on the Great Seal? Yeah, that's not really an eagle. That's actually a conventionalized phoenix. We, we just stylize it to fool you guys. Right. Uh, you know, here's the most one of the most prolific writers of Freemasonry telling you what the Masons really meant, who designed these things, <laughs> that it that it's actually a phoenix. And I mean, as soon as you realize that that's a phoenix, everything starts to make sense because in the mythology, the phoenix uh, is a dying and resurrecting bird. Uh, in the Egyptian, it's uh, it was known as the uh, Benu, which is the soul bird of Osiris. <laughs> And so, uh, I, all of a sudden, I just had this vision in my head of, of, that if was Jesus looking forward in time and seeing a body pulled out of the desert, put into a secret chamber, surrounded by eagle-wearing people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, a lot of the modern tr other translations, the English translations, changed it to vultures. Right. Um, and I, I, I can only presume that they did so because they were thinking, uh, well, it's talking about a carcass, so... You know, let's put a vulture in there because eagles are known as birds of prey, even though they do go after dead things too, but uh, as scavengers. But I think the eagle is a perfect uh, translation, especially when you look at all the occult symbols and everything else. So uh, to me, it just it all fell into place. And I and and then when I read Tom Horn's book, uh, Polly and Rising, and he deciphered the uh, pyramid on the great seal yeah. and the 72 stones, 13 steps, each representing a 19.7 year time period called the Katoon that began in 1756. And, and the first Katoon and the cycle of 13 ended in 1776, which is at the base of the pyramid on the great seal. Well, 13 times 19.7 uh, time periods from 1756 lands you in 2012. Right, and right. It's so, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you look at all this stuff and you go, oh, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I have no clue. Uh, I can only speculate based on what the symbols are saying. But it appears that we may be very close to seeing Matthew twenty four twenty eight come true. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I guess we'll find out in a couple months, but <laughs> yeah, we're pretty close, huh? Right, getting yeah, closer every day. We're, we're getting now. Whether this is a a public event or a private event, I don't know because it could just as easily go completely under the radar and sort of fester for a while before it finally manifests on the on the main stage. Right. Or yeah, it could just that be, would just be a. Uh, I could just see, um, you know, the response when you know the world doesn't end in December. <laughs> right. Um, you know, just the the whole turning away and the mockery and the you know sort of just sure. the, the the public um, perception of that the the, the public I don't even know what to call it. Well, well, like Y two K, you know. Yeah, all, exactly. All the buildup and it was a total dud. Uh, you know, if, if we have another big buildup, like, I mean, this is the biggest buildup. This one's of all. huge. Yeah, this is, this goes, this spans multiple cultures on multiple continents across centuries and millennia. <laughs> uh, so this is a lot bigger than Microsoft's 2K issue. Right. <laughs> you know, that's pretty cool. Uh, uh, but clearly, something, you know, thinking mili- from a military perspective, a strategic, uh, it, it would be the ideal time for the devil to to do something because there's been so much hype and build up uh, and expectation for it so i i do expect that something will happen um you know what i don't i don't know but yeah uh, yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah and it's fascinating um this is a little bit unrelated but uh back when we were talking about the olympics too yeah um obviously them being this year is a is a, is a synchronistic event, yeah. but yeah. But then, um, we, we, you know, we think about the false flag type stuff that, uh, you know, everybody's sort of talking about with the Olympics and my personal, um, you know, theory or the way that I lean is that, uh, you know, a pandemic would, would be the perfect place or the, the Olympics would be a perfect place to, uh, you know, sort of, begin a pandemic and have it um, sort of lie dormant in the human body as they go back to their homes and then you know a few months later for instance like in uh, December or something uh-huh. um, it would be the perfect time for you know the antidote <laughs> the antidote exactly <clears throat> yeah because I do believe this all plays into the mark of the beast and and what's really interesting is that uh, I, I went to see L.A. Marzuli in Lubbock Texas a couple of months ago and he was talking about his theory regarding the mark of the beast and how it's uh, a rewrite of your DNA. And he was saying how you know he he had come to that conclusion based on his research with uh, Doctor Lear and the um, the alien implants that they were removing. Right. And his right. his comment was that these things could be rewriting people's DNA. Um, but then he discovered that uh, I think it was I don't know if it was Stanton Friedman or there's one other guy and Doug Hamp had had each also came to that conclusion. And so he was saying that, you know, with no collusion between these guys, they all come to the same conclusion and were wondering if the other person was stealing their material, you know, right. did, you, right. did you read my book? Are you copying me? Um, <laughs> and so after it was over, uh, I had a chance to, to meet and talk with him. And this first time I met with him in person and I said, you might have to add a couple more names to that because I came to the same conclusion from a totally different angle. Uh, Dr. Bennett did too, as well as Tom Horn. Uh, all of us coming at it from different angles, but arriving at the same conclusion is that the mark of the beast is definitely going to have something to do with your DNA. Uh, I believe to the point where it rewrites your DNA such that you are no longer redeemable right. because you, you effectively become uh, a Nephilim. Yeah. Uh, right. 
Yeah. I mean, you, you think about it, it's people and, and, uh, uh, to your point regarding the pandemic, uh, everybody thinks of the mark of the beast in terms of buying and selling, uh-huh, you know, right. uh, you won't be able to buy and sell, but you, you, you gotta remember it also talks about that, uh, pe- people will beg for death and death will flee from them. Right. Right. You well, know, so something going on there. And, and Tom Horn, he speculates with regard to the, if it is a pandemic situation, and this is the this, this super vaccine, right? And, oh, by the way, you know, it might extend your life, too. You yep, know, exactly. uh, this is this is going to be great. Uh, it's hailed as the super cure. Well, uh, just think in terms of the flu vaccination right now. Exactly. There, are some, there are some people that are not allowed to keep their job unless they get the flu shot. So. Right. Tom speculates that if this is a global pandemic and this is the only solution for it, then there will be quarantine zones where you won't be able to buy and sell unless you can prove with your mark, you know, uh, that you have been vaccinated. Yeah, it's like right. the perfect uh, Hegelian dialectic, right? Perfect. And it, and, and it makes um, it makes sense also that, um, you know, I was talking to some guy who was a biologist um, over in Branson when we were there, and he was telling me that um, in Japan. <clears throat> when the earthquake hit last year and the tsunami and everything and the, the nuclear power plant went down, uh, one of the chemicals that got released was this certain calcium. I can't remember the exact name of it. And I got to look into that and figure out what the name was. But essentially, this calcium has a half-life of about 50 years. And oh. so, and, and he was saying that all these people in Japan are getting exposed to this calcium. And they have, you know, they're, they're presumably they think they're fine. But then if the half-life is 40 years or 50 years or something... You know, all of a sudden, you know, half a century from now, all these people in Japan are starting to get radiation poison. And, uh. um, you know, so uh, the whole concept of a time release uh, pandemic and, you know, what a what what a greater place to do it than the Olympics, where all these people are gathered from all over the world. Uh, they're in one place. You can spread it without anybody knowing about it. They bring it back to their countries. It spreads more. And I mean, <laughs> it is just a perfect setup to. Uh, that kind of flies under the radar. You know, it doesn't have to be a big, you know, terrorist attack or, you know, an alien ship showing up or anything like that. Sure. Um, it can be very, very, very subtle. And that's a scary thing about the, uh, you know, the whole biochemical uh, warfare type stuff. And, um, you know, I, I think it is interesting that you mentioned all those people coming to the same conclusion about DNA because I, I honestly believe that that's, that's actually a spirit-led thing. Because, yeah, I think so too. Because, to be honest with you, I had the same... Ideas. Now, I wasn't researching, and I wasn't really too deep into all the stuff when, uh, when I thought of it. I was actually trying to figure out what's going on with the new age and what's going on with Jesus. If the new and I was, it, I was, it was in a period of time where I was fairly confused. But I had that concept of like, well, maybe the mark of the beast has something to do with DNA. I had that thought. So, um, yeah, I, I know it's it's definitely not just coincidence that all these people, all of a sudden, uh, all these researchers that are respected. And, and scholars and researchers and everybody are, are coming to the same conclusion. Um, and it's kind of scary if you think about it. It's, it's one yeah. of those things you can't, you can't really point your finger and say, there it is. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's, uh, well, I, I came to it the way I came to it. Um, cause I was, once I understood w- what I believe was happening both before and after the flood with re- regards to the return of the Nephilim, as it pertains to animal human hybridization, that, that sent me on a path to, to study all kinds of stuff related to that. I found all kinds of crazy stuff like like the liger. Um, right. <laughs> if, if people go to ligerliger.com, L-I-G-E-R-L-I-G-E-R.com, uh, you'll see that the, these 
unnatural hybrids. This is where they mate a male lion with a female tiger. Right. It creates a huge, uh, it, well, it creates a normal sized baby. But what happens is the, the uh, growth inhibitor gene is missing. Right. Because the female lion has a growth inhibitor gene and the male tiger has a growth inhibitor gene. And so when in normal reproduction, uh, that's what keeps the species in check as far as height goes. But when you mate a male lion that doesn't have a, the gene inhibitor, uh, the growth inhibitor gene, uh, with a female tiger that doesn't have a growth inhibitor gene, you produce an offspring that doesn't have a growth inhibitor gene that just simply keeps growing until it dies. Right. And if you look on their main page, they named the, the ligers that they've created, Zeus, Vulcan, uh, you know, Hercules. <laughs> they named them after the Nephilim, you know? Yeah, I'm on so, the page now, and it is uh, yeah. bizarre. <laughs> yeah, dude, I'm telling you. You look at it, and you go, okay. I mean, they named them the Nephilim, so that should tell you something. But, right. but, it, but it made me think about, oh, well, maybe that's how the giants became giants. You yeah. know, it, it could just simply be as simple as not having a growth inhibitor gene. I mean, I've got one in me that said Rob stops growing when he's 16 years old at five foot, 10 and a half, you know, that's it. You know, I stop, but these guys just keep on going, you know? Well, I Uh, think that's a, I think that's a big point when we start talking about all this stuff with DNA and giants and things like that. Um, it's, it's a big thing when people start thinking about it, you know, it's hard to not, um, specifically think about it in sort of abstract spiritual terms. But, um, when we're dealing with physical beings like physical giants and things of that nature, I mean, there is a DNA reason for everything to happen. Right. And there's a, a physical biological reason for things to happen. So I think it's, um, you know, imperative that people, understand and sort of grasp the concept and start thinking in the framework of uh, things like this, like you're saying, the giants and growth inhibitors, things are working through these natural biological things um, like hormones and things like that. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, they're giant because they come from hell or something like that. It's yeah. not, it's not purely it, a spiritual, there's more, there, it's actually more. working within the framework of, what we understand in the natural world. Exactly. Absolutely. And now let me take this a step farther because as I was, as doing all this research on genetics and seeing how it works and stuff, um, I came across a documentary. It was a BBC documentary, uh, on transplant memory. And what it was saying is that they had all these case studies where people had received an organ from an organ donor that had died. And these people were taking on gifts, talents, abilities, memories, of their right. organ donor. And so here's somebody who never played a musical instrument in their life, all of a sudden becomes a phenomenal piano player or somebody else becomes a martial artist and, and uh, never had anything. You know, if you're taking on gifts, talents, spirit, uh, memories, uh, and uh, abilities of somebody else because you put a organ in your body, you basically transplanted a soul. Right. Um, and, and I started to look at that in terms of what, what does the scripture have to say uh, because, uh, and that's when I began to speculate, and I talked about this briefly on Derek Gilbert's show. Uh, you might remember Ghani uh, last year at the Future Congress when I was on with um, Russ Dizdar and uh, I think it was Jim Fletcher. Yeah, I was and, I was sitting right behind you. <laughs> yeah, you were right right there, and and I made the comment that I, I this was when I was beginning this research. I was like, I, I am becoming absolutely convinced that there's a spiritual component to DNA. 
it's it's more than just the physical flesh because you got stories like where Cain kills Abel and Abel's blood is crying up from the earth. Right. You're like you're like what? What, what do you mean his blood is crying? It's blood. Um, and then you read through the Torah and you see how God is so like adamant about issues of blood, uh, what to do and what not to do and how to cleanse and what, to, you know, all this stuff dealing with blood all through the, the, the Torah. Um, it, so it makes you wonder, okay, what's going on with the blood? And when you think of the idea that, okay, I transplant somebody's organ in my body and all of a sudden I'm, I've got their memories and I've got their talents and gifts and abilities. Right. Well, that means that, and, and people have, scientists have speculated for quite some time now that memory is probably not just limited to the brain, that long-term memory may actually be stored in DNA. Right. And I find it so fascinating um, because, I mean, uh, Gonzo and I have, have been talking about um, all sorts of transhumanism stuff um, with, uh, you know, uh, capturing brain patterns and um, DNA and things like this and being able to, uh, you know, put it inside of a different body or things like that. And so that's right down our alley. But also I find it interesting um, because in many ancient cultures, as well as a lot of cultures today um, that are, uh, you know, not American. I mean, the, the whole eating of an enemy's body parts. Right. Yeah. Or the preservers. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you got yeah, ancient culture, cultures, they would kill a bear, drink all the blood, put the skin on and become a berserker. I'm, you know, they, right. they were taking on personalities. And all of a sudden, now you start thinking about, oh, lycanthropy, you know. Um, hmm. It, yeah. is, is this the whole werewolf thing, uh, when you look through history, you find a lot of precedents that, that, that would lead you to believe that there's some truth to that, that lore. Um, and, and, and so it, that's how I came to the whole Mark of the Beast thing, because I thought, oh, wow. It, what if, it, okay, let's say Nimrod does resurrect, He's a walking dead guy, first of all, uh, if that happens. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and, oh, by the way, let's offer everybody else immortality, too. Because if he's an antithesis of Jesus Christ, and that means, he, you know, as the Antichrist, he's going to, uh, everything he does is going to be a, a counterfeit uh, of what Jesus did. And, and we think about our salvation. How did we get saved? We got saved through the blood of Christ. And so it, the Antichrist, it just makes sense that he would also offer a false salvation a, a counterfeit immortality that would be purchased through his blood, which would be the mark of the beast. That's, that's how I arrived at it. I, I arrived at it by thinking, wow, you know, if DNA does actually contain a soul uh, uh, and memories, then wow. What if you just injected part of Nimrod into you? Right. Uh, you know, you become a walking dead guy. The, it, the, the reason why people beg for death and death flees from them is because they're fe- effectively a zombie. Right. right. Well, there's, I've, you know, we've speculated on this show also about um, that verse in Revelation that talks about, you know, people finding, seeking death and not finding it um, as a possibility of, hey, you know, we, we talk a lot about transhumanism on this show. And, and um, you know, just recently there was a guy named Hayworth who works in Harvard who thinks that. He, there's this new branch of neuroscience called connectomics. I think it's how you say it. Connect, connectomics. So connectomics. Mm. And basically um, it's, it's a computer computerized neural circuitry where it actually maps out your, the neurons in your brain in a computer. Mm. And yeah. so his whole concept and his whole theory, this guy, you know, is getting, you know, $40 million of, you know, <laughs> 
uh, money to to you know look into this research. And basically, the theory is that within uh, you know the next hundred years or so, he wants to be able to live forever because he's going to be able to you know upload his consciousness onto a computer. And we've yeah. talked about it a lot, but I think it's interesting that there is actual stuff coming out now that specifically talks about the mechanics of how this is going to work. And, you know, who knows if they'll ever get there. You know, like Doug Hamp doesn't think they're going to get there. Uh, you know, he thinks the, you know, Yeshua is going to come back before to, to intervene. But, and I'm, you know, I'm totally for that. But at the same time, you know, it's interesting to see that they're actually going for it at a very yeah. practical level. And they're throwing millions and almost billions of dollars at this stuff. And, you know, right. we all know where that's coming from. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I agree completely. And it's strange because almost every pick a subject, whatever subject I, I, I dive into, I can't get much past 2020, the year 2020. Uh, and so it's, yeah. it's, I, I, I kinda, it's kind of ironic, but I say uh, I can't see past 2020 <laughs> <laughs> because it, it is it, everything is so accelerated and, and moving at such a fast pace that I, I just can't see how mankind could survive much past there. And it makes me think of what Jesus said, uh, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, but you've got time magazine, February edition, 2011. Uh, it said 2045, the year man becomes immortal. Right. And it, right. and it shows a dude with a plug in the back of his head. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We, we, we definitely touched on that. And, and also the, the conference over in Russia, it was like the 20, it was the same thing, 2045, the, all these, you know, big guys like Ray Kurzweil and all these other uh, really, really smart people got together and talked about how they're going to, you know, become post-human and, and the yeah. singularity and, and all this stuff. And I mean, it's endless. And at the same time, like you said, I, I don't see us, you know, I don't see us making it that much further, especially if they start doing some of this stuff and it's, it's you know, it, it's being externalized to the point where people are volunteering their lives to, I don't know, oh, upload yeah. their consciousness. I mean, it, it's just crazy. It's just yeah. mind blowing. I did a, um, in, in the presentation that, that I did at the uh, prophecy summit, uh, as part of my two part archon invasion DVD, the, the second part deals with the return of the Nephilim now and in the future. And in that one, I show, uh, professor, uh, Warwick and, uh, Nick Bostrom and, um, uh, Hugo Daguerres, mm -hmm. these guys talking about their views uh, for the singularity. And then the end of that clip, I show Michio Kaku saying that, yeah, you know, we, we all know that the Terminator, uh, it could become a reality, you know, uh, in, in the future. And so he's got a brilliant solution so that the machines don't take over. He says, we should just merge with them. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and and he goes on this whole thing about, yeah, you know, you could upload your consciousness to the hive mind and, you know, download, you know, uh, the wisdom of the world into your mind. And, you know, we all become homo superior, you know, and yeah. he ends, he ends by saying, we become like the gods. And then he says, who wants to sign up? And the crowd that he was with, it looked like it was at a sci-fi convention or something. <laughs> they were all like, Aah! just go wild, huh? Yeah, they go crazy. And, it's, and you know that it's going to be appealing. And, and I even say to my seminar, I say, okay, let's put a spiritual spin on it. And I hold my Bible up and I say, just imagine if you could download this in five minutes, the entire Bible with every commentary ever written on the Bible and, and Strong's Concordance in five minutes. You know, I mean, Come on, how how awesome would that be, right? Right. Uh, yeah. You know, it would. You know, the sales pitch is going to be enticing. Yeah. Right. Well, even um, 
we made the comparison a couple episodes ago about the, um, you know, people will seek death, but they will not find it. If your consciousness is sort of uh, trapped inside this mega computer, um, you know, yeah, you can't, never dies. You, yeah, you can't just leave without it <laughs> erasing you. And, you, yeah. you know, and it just, it, uh, it's just a very interesting um, theory to look into the future like that. Yeah, it's crazy that this stuff was, was being written about and talked about and thought about back in way back i mean or probably even beyond this but i was watching on netflix the original star trek series uh you know captain kirk and all that and uh, you got this you know he goes on this this planet where all these mines are are in these in this globe you know and kirk right. has to fight and they're all they're all they could do is just kidnap people from outer space and in uh wager on the uh, basically a coliseum battle you know but but they're just brains in these domes you know yeah. uh where, where they yeah, downloaded exactly. their consciousness and, it, and you know they're writing about this stuff back in 1963 yeah probably probably even further back than that but you know just looking at how pop culture has been treating it i just watched a really cool episode uh of star trek enterprise uh on netflix the other day it was called similitude and it, it deals with one of the main characters the engineer uh, it gets hurt and the ship gets trapped in this field and all these things are getting attached to the hull. And if they don't get out of there within a certain amount of days, it would crush the hull. But he's mm-hmm. the only one, he's the only one that could fix the ship and he's in a coma. And so right. the doctor says, well, I got this special larvae that if uh, you inject DNA into it, it will become a clone that will grow into maturity in 15 days but and die. And so they, they clone trip the, the engineer and this, this, this larvae morphs into a fetus and grows into a baby and grows to adulthood within 15 days um, as a complete perfect clone of trip but what happened was the older that the the clone got the more memories of trip's life it recalled because because the memories were contained in the dna right and so by the time he reached the same age as trip he effectively was trip i mean he had all of his memories you know, uh, and when he realized that they want to basically harvest his brain oh, <laughs> uh, to, to fix the other guy, right. he's like, he's like, but I don't want to die. You know, I, I, I am trip, you know, let him die. Right. You know, but yeah. he was, he, his lifespan was only 15 days. So, that, you know, they're saying, well, well, you're going to be dead in 15 days. And he brings up the point that there was some research done that a certain enzyme could, it was experimental, could, could freeze the that process so that he lives a, a normal life uh i mean the ethical issues that were raised that, that were raised in this one episode yeah were were amazing and and when you think about the fact that that what they're saying is that dna does contain memory uh it really makes you think about things like the mark of the beast and potentially taking on the beast's memories and personality and and the movie um spider-man actually perfectly illustrates what my thesis what i've been trying to say regarding uh the creation of animal human hybrids bringing about the nephilim did you see it yet no (laughs) i need Uh, to go see these movies yeah you got to see these movies (laughs) man i i won't i won't spoil it for you but i'll just say that the 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 guy who becomes his enemy in the movie is a a normal guy you know his intentions are good he's he's missing an arm and he wants to grow it back and so, you know, lizards, you could cut their tail off, you know, and it, right. it grows back. So he's, he gets the idea of, of blending himself with a lizard to, to grow his arm back, you know, and right. help other 
help other people with the same, you know, issues or whatever. But what's interesting is here's this guy that's, you know, pretty altruistic, you know, seems like a nice guy, turns into this very evil lizard guy, you know, uh, and, and then when that wears off, he goes back to normal and he's normal again. So it, it clearly when you mix yourself, even in the movies, these guys are getting this, you know, that when you mix yourself with something else, uh, another spirit gets in there. Right. And, and yet here you got pop culture who seems to intimately understand these truths and churches are either clueless or will fight you tooth and nail against it. Like, or just think it's a non-issue as well. I mean, Oh yeah. Crazy. You know, it's, a, it's almost the, the choice of being ignorant about certain things, just as, uh, you know, they'll criticize, you know, non-believers for choosing to be ignorant about things or whatnot. And, um, yeah, it's just something that needs to be uh, brought up. And it, in my um, experience, it just is a matter of time before they're forced to start thinking about these sort of things, especially with all this stuff happening in the news and everything. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's about time everybody starts uh, getting an opinion. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think what you mentioned, you know, when you mentioned the crowd going wild after Michio Kaku saying, you know, all the stuff about being gods and stuff. I think the dividing line uh, or, or the line in the sand, if you will, between, um, you know, those, those of us who know, who, who know the truth, who know Yeshua, who know that this isn't right. <laughs> yeah. And, and those that are just so for it, that it, it, I, I don't think there's ever been a time in history where, you know, obviously with land and different nations and stuff, there were divisions, but we're getting to a point where there's going to be a true divide of, Yes. Technology, science, uh, that, that, you know, materialistic mindset and, and people that don't adhere to that. It's going to be really interesting to, to start seeing that clear, you know, become more clearer and clearer. And I think the reason why it's dangerous that, you know, we as the church doesn't really talk about it is because, you know, at least for, for me and Basil, we're at the same church. We know that, you know, our church embraces technology, which, you know, most churches do, but uh, like the big churches, you know, they have the super mega thing. There's right on top of technology, you know, when the iPhones came out, everybody got an iPhone and, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. At some point it's going to become, you know, it, it's going to tear the church apart. And I, I actually think it's going to be, you know, it could be potentially part of that apostasy, the falling away that, that Yeshua talks about right. uh, in Matthew 24. It could be that there's literally like this, this divide where, you know, oh, you guys are just old fashioned. You guys aren't with the times, you know you know, we're, we're all about a millennialism or whatever it is, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and, and go with the flow. And then the rest of us are going, no, 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 this is prophecy being fulfilled right now. You know? Yeah, so, right. exactly. Well, I think a, a good thing to remember, especially for those of us in the know is that, you know, we talk about, you know, this isn't right. Um, but it's almost like we have to take a stance, like this isn't right. Not just in an ethical sort of way. You know, yeah, not in yeah. this ethereal sort of God doesn't want this. So let's not do this. It's this is a bad idea. This is dangerous. And this is going to destroy the human race. So can we please, you know, think of something else to do? Oh, man, that's what even even Hugo de Garris, who is who's making the, the, the he's the mind builder that's out there building uh, nanotech brains. Right. Uh, he, he comes right out and s- says that he has nightmares about the extinction of the human race, but right. he, yet, yet he says, you know, am I prepared to race the extinction to, to risk 
the extinction of the human race for the sake of building these things? And he goes, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you're like, dude. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, right. well, I mean, that's just sort of the attitude with, uh, you know, yeah. with, the, with a lot of the scientific community, which is, you know, progress is God. You know, in a lot of senses, progress is God and to, to stop progress, scientific progress is blasphemy. Yeah. Yeah. We actually, there was an episode a few, I think a couple episodes ago where he talked about personhood and we bring it up. We've, I think we've brought it up since the article since then, but basically this guy lays out like, you know, uh, how we have to, you know, indoctrinate the, the public into accepting these new technologies. Like, you know, people have fears about these technologies. And he has these like five points of like how to prevent technological dystopia is what he calls it. And um, the, <laughs> the first point is carry on and hope for the best. <laughs> yeah. It was like the rest of it is just, you know, it's, it's not really, it doesn't make sense, but that's the attitude. That's what he wants. He wants just people to just, Hey, relax. It's going to be okay. You know, actually it's going to be cool. You know, when you, when you think about uh, what we can do with this technology and then you have, um, uh, some lady, I don't, I don't know her name, uh, but she basically talks about, you know, imagine if Versace was alive in the transhuman era, you know, <laughs> imagine how she can, you can, uh, he can design the human body and make it so beautiful and artistic right. and all this stuff. So they're appealing to the arts as right. well. And, and man, that's just like getting at the roots of culture. So, uh, I, I don't know. I, again, like you said, I don't know how much more time we got. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's going in so many different directions so fast that man i i understand why jesus why yeshua said except those days be short <laughs> yeah uh, we're going to destroy ourselves exactly exactly, <laughs> exactly. well rob skiba everybody thanks for coming on the show again um really really interesting stuff really mind-blowing and uh i'm sure that the listeners are just uh, sitting at the edge of their seats but we're gonna have to um leave them waiting till next week so we can finish the conversation oh boy (laughs) we're we're leaving a cliffhanger (laughs) exactly and so rob skiba um He's got some websites, babylonrisingbooks.com, where you can check out all of his stuff, his books, his DVDs, all of just the extremely fascinating material that and research that he's uh, spent so much uh, energy and time going into. Also, Babylon Rising Blog. Where you can read and listen to a lot of his stuff for free, um, free knowledge. You can't uh, get enough of that. And also his series that he is working on um, called SeedTheSeries.com. Make sure to check it out um, and uh, look for it. You know, on your teletube coming up. Yeah, uh, and actually got a, a piece. You'll be the. I'm giving you an exclusive here. Right. So, so, oh, so we can oh. end on an exclusive heard first on Canary Cry Radio. <laughs> uh, I just uh, signed a contract with uh, Sharon K. Gilbert. Oh wow! To do the novelization of the book uh, of this TV series to create the TV series as a novel. That is wow. awesome. And so uh, we just we just uh, did a contract, and uh, she's busy writing right now. Uh, taking the scripts that I've written, the TV episode scripts, and turning it into a fictional novel. So that's what she's been doing because they yeah. haven't done a PID episode in like months. 
Well, yeah. this this is new. She just started this. So oh, I don't okay. know what she did before, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, and that'll be available uh, through the websites as soon as it's finished. We have a, set an ambitious goal <laughs> of trying to have the first uh, uh, finished draft by December first. Very cool. So, wow. So yeah, That's awesome. cool. everybody, you heard it here first on Canary Cry Radio, and that is something <laughs> definitely to look forward to. Rob Skiba, thank you once again, and. Uh, We look forward to continuing the conversation next week. Everybody, make sure to uh, check in again and um, be ready to have your mind blown next week. Yeah, right on. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, yeah, you bet. Thank you.